thanks for listening. This is In the Studio with Michael Card. I'm Wayne Shepard. Hey, Mike, on Facebook, I saw some pictures you posted of yeah. a place called Fair Play. It yes. looks like a beautiful outdoor setting. Yeah. Tell me about Fair Play. What is that? Well, it's close to Westminster, South Carolina. It's uh, an amazing ministry. There's a, a, a boys' camp and a girls' camp. And these are kids uh, who've sort of fallen fallen through the cracks, uh, uh, kids that uh, have uh, gone through the foster care system and you know and not not been adopted out. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are the most the most remarkable group of young men. Uh, they're pro- age probably twelve, thirteen, uh, down to probably six, seven, eight. Yeah, young. Yeah, yeah, young. And um, they're divided up into little tribes, uh, ten or fifteen guys. They have a, a, a college age chief okay and uh they they cut trails and they work in the woods and it's uh, really an outdoor kind it, of thing it's an isn't outdoor it? yeah. camp that they're there for a year and a half wow winter winter and all and they're out you know out sleeping out outside well they have a, a tent type structure that mm-hmm. they that they build and, and live in and uh, i have never seen uh such a transformational group they you you would think oh these are kids that are going to have lots of problems they are the sweetest bunch of Is kids. Right? I just love being there. Huh. And uh, every, every evening they end with a powwow. Each group goes into the woods, they build a fire, and they sit around and they talk about uh, what got left undone that day okay. or what, what they need to work on in their own lives. And uh, the success rate is just through through the roof okay. in this place. Is it Christian theme? It's a Christian theme. Yeah, it's okay. a Mennonite community that runs oh, it. Oh, I see. Okay, and um, I just can't say enough enough good things. I saw you posted the picture of, a, of an outdoor worship service. Yeah, they have a ch- they have church outside, um, and they have a Facebook page if you want to go uh, check out what they're doing. Fair play, fair play camp school. All right, very good. Hey, coming up today, uh, Ken Boa will be with us. Now, he's written a lot of books. Yes. <laughs> but I hear he's quite an astronomer as well. Well, we shared in common that we both worked in a planetarium, so I think we're going to talk about that a <laughs> okay. little bit. But talk about how God speaks to us through creation, most most especially how he speaks to us, to us through the stars. Yeah. Uh, before we get to that, and you're going to sing for us in a moment, I want to thank people for not only subscribing to this podcast, yeah. but passing the word along. The great thing about a podcast is that you can go back in the archive. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to us for the first time, you can go back and listen to all the previous episodes. Yeah, listen on, right your, there. on your phone or your iPod or any of your devices. That's, and I know you spend a fair amount of time traveling and driving places. What a great thing to take in the car. It, it really is. I think it, it's because because we have the informational piece down, I hope, but there's also a community piece. And I think when you're driving alone for a long time, it's fun to hear people that are really love each other and are close and are creating that content together. Yeah. Well, speaking of the archive, in part two of today's program, we're going to hear your Lament Conference, Job Part Two. Mm-hmm. So if you missed part one, just go back in the archive. Yeah, you can listen to it. it. It's right there. Yeah. Okay, you're going to sing Star Kindler for us yeah. now. And this is fun because you're going to play the harp. Yeah, uh, and I, I dearly love that. I don't have any more, but I dearly love this instrument. It was an, a maple Irish harp, 36 strings. And uh, I spent uh, several years lugging that thing around on the bus. You taught yourself to play it? Yeah, it's a really easy instrument to oh, play. Oh, sure. Yeah. It really is easy <laughs> okay. instrument to play. And Shanoa Alamo is going to play with yes. you her violin yeah. Yeah. on this as well. Yeah. Star Kindler. And this will be a perfect setup to talk with Ken Bowen. Yes.
and holy being, the light that travels far, began the trip from his fingertips, the wonder of the stars, confirm the signs and seasons, so silently they sing, of the wonder of their kindler, of the power of their king. Mike, sometimes I think we should record the pre-conversation of these interviews instead of the actual interview, yeah. because we just had a lot of fun with Ken Boa. Well, that's what I just told Joe, Joe we need to do. <laughs> but we're going to start officially now and introduce Ken Boa. Kenneth Boa is an author, a speaker, the president of Reflections Ministries. He's the author of over 50 books. You've wow. got the newest one in front of you there. So. Yes, I'm excited to read this, uh, Life in the Presence of God, because I, Brother Lawrence, The Practice of the Presence of God, was a huge yeah. book for me. So, Ken, welcome. I had to ask the two of you to stop talking before we started the recording here. So <laughs> we can begin officially now. Well, now we're going to yeah, behave, get, though. Get That's no fun. Stop playing so much. You yeah. see, they have to pay attention and sit <laughs> up and... Yeah. Report. Right. This Ken, this will be much more boring, right? <laughs> Indeed, it will be. There it That's is. The okay. Whose fault is, who's fault is that, Michael? We were restrained. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's begin. Michael, meet Ken Bowen. Okay. It's nice to meet you, Ken. Uh, I, you I'm, too. To get to start our conversation, a long time ago, I, I wrote a song called uh, "The Nazarene." The Nazarene had come to live the life of every man, and he felt the fascination. Of the stars, go, mm. go. Mm. Um, I've been drawn ever since because of the sense of the majesty and the transcendence. Even before I knew Jesus, mm. the dynamic of looking up at the at the sky. I tell people even today that if you ever have a problem of supposing that you're a captain of the universe, <laughs> um, if you want to get a perspective of where you really are in this world, lie down on a, especially if you can find. Uh, a clear night, yes. and if you can possibly see uh, the Milky Way, very few people ever see it because of that, uh, because of the, the places where we are. But suppose you look up at that. After about 10 minutes, you realize you're not looking up. You're looking down. Actually, you're not looking up or down. Hmm. You're immersed hmm. in this mystery of glory that David spoke of uh, declaring the glory of the living God, pointing beyond itself as a transcendent pointer to that which is so beyond us um, that it evokes the imagination and stirs the whole concept of um, of awe, majesty, and wonder. And and the reality is that David could only see about three thousand stars. The, un- mm-hmm. the the naked eye can only see that many. Mm-hmm. And and now we begin to realize. Oh my word! After Edwin Hubble in the twenties realized, uh, he was the first to realize that the Milky Way galaxy is not the whole of the cosmos, but mm-hmm. rather <laughs> it's only now one of perhaps some. 200 to 400 billion oh, galaxies. The galaxy, and, they're like snowflakes. They're like snowflakes. Yeah. It, it's astonishing. In fact, new, a newer estimate, instead of 200 billion, is now perhaps as many as 2 trillion. But the wow. idea, and then each one containing two, uh, 200 to 400 billion stars, mm-hmm. there are more stars in the visible universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches and all of the world, uh, all the deserts of the world, and possibly by a factor of 10. But he knows them all by name. Mike, this has been your fascination for a lifetime, too, hasn't it? Well, but I don't think, not to the degree that Ken has gone into it, but yeah, um, uh, astronomy has been very important to me. I want to hear you, Ken, Ken, uh, you know, God takes Abraham outside and says, look up if you can count Mm -hmm. the stars. I mean, even God points people to the stars to to make points. Indeed he does. Yes. Indeed. In fact, the uh, four portals or entryways for God's revelatory communication with us include, first of all, uh, his world, and then second, his word, and then third, his works, and finally, his ways. Mm -hmm. And so this is um, an agency of of the living God. I call it windows of heaven. In fact, I have a whole video of this um, on my website just to use astronomy images. We're blessed and be able to see things that no one else could see. Even a few decades ago, mm-hmm. the, the um, 
parameters that we now have the capacity to see these nebulae and these other in such remarkable color details are beyond anything that any other generations have seen. We're but, great, greatly privileged. But even binoculars, you can the things you can see with binoculars are, are pretty impressive. I, I, I remember, I will never forget this, uh, we, we used to live out in the country and, and uh, it was a pretty, pretty clear sky, and I had some astronomical binoculars, pr- pretty big binoculars, and there was an elderly woman, I, I pointed them at, at Saturn, and she looked mm-hmm. at the, the eyepieces and she just burst into tears. Mm. <laughs> I'd never seen anything like it. Oh, my word. Yeah. yeah. I mean, imagine the moment when Galileo saw not only Jupiter, but the four moons. Wow. Uh, his, the, those, and that moment of sudden of revelation and the realization there are bands in this thing, and this is beyond anything you would have ever dreamed or imagined. And it just goes from there. When he looks back, the surface. he looks back 30 minutes later and they moved, right? He drew <laughs> they pictures. Did, they moved. Yeah, these exactly things are moving. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so all of these wonders are are available to us, and uh, we uh, most people rarely notice or appreciate, and I think God loves it when people um, see and say thank you for that glory and that beauty. Mm-hmm. One of the things I try to train myself to do, for example, when I'm driving now, is to uh, appreciate the beauty that I'm seeing. I'm going through a funnel of beauty, of, of glory, that mm-hmm. most people never even notice. But you can train yourself to be aware of that at the same time that you're driving. It doesn't take extra time at all. It's mm. a, it's a, and then you begin to see things you never even noticed before. So that's part. Remember, that's part yeah. of this. That's part of this life in the presence of God. Is it, is seeing uh, that was my clever little way of of, of having a segue <laughs> into the um, <laughs> the very one of the early exercises I did a few years ago. It was in a January, and there. And so I'm, I'm driving. I said, I'm going to try to train myself to do something that requires no additional time. Mm. Because Thomas Kelly, in his testament of devotion, made it evident that, and I think he's quite right, that God has created us in such a way that we are capable of thinking on two levels simultaneously. We're really amphibious beings, one foot in heaven and the other on earth. And mm. as a consequence, I believe we have the spiritual capacity that's as great as our capacity to see the physical, the material, the mundane, the ordinary, the routine. But it must be—it's—it's it's there, but it's latent and must be trained and developed. And as a result of in- integrating the two, you're not multitasking; you're integrating, and mm-hmm. then you begin to see heaven and earth. And after a while, you see what you couldn't have seen before. And so. I saw the dendritic architecture of trees. I saw the the bones of trees in that January, and I was astonished. Wait a minute. What I've never noticed, no two are alike. And then you begin to realize the the leaf canopy it's preparing for. And then I saw a few weeks later a tulip magnolia, and I almost went off the road because Uh. I never the the, the the moment of, of, ah, purple and white, and this beauty. And now I cannot help but do it. It's a matter of, that's not a matter of time, it's a matter of intention. And that doesn't even take into account the way they smell. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) It just goes on. Let's not go there. I have a list of 15 senses and counting. (laughs) Wow. But I just thought there were like four or five. (laughs) There used to be, uh, my my list is 15, but that's another discussion. Wow. (laughs) Well, go on. I love to hear the two of you talk about these things, especially the, the, here's God who created all this and at the same time invites us to commune with him. And what about the creation story? And he created the stars also. Yes, it just throws that in. He created the stars also. Oh, and by the way. And, and, yeah, by the way. <laughs> and then that remakes, it immediately made me think of the last uh, stanza in the uh, the, the last canto of the, the Divine Com- Comedy, what he called Comedia, because it ends well. And he said, the love that moves the sun and other stars. Mm. Mm. And I, it makes me think of the verse, as you know, that precedes Genesis 1-1. There we hear, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. But then we see in John, uh, in the beginning was the Lagos, mm-hmm. and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Suddenly we realize this is before the beginning of matter energy, space, and time. We are now dealing with that which is so beyond our comprehension, mm-hmm. and we're, ent- we're privileged to enter into that. And then the astonish- astonishing mystery within a mystery, like nested hierarchies of mystery, 
the logos, the word takes humanity into himself and becomes one with us. The logos he, through whom he created all of this. Who, the one who creates, a, who creates the whole thing now enters into this creation, and now there's a man in heaven, the idea of him being an amphibious being, that there was no such creature before the angels, are, do not, are not embodied, and the a- animals have no spirits. We are uh, spiritual beings having an earthbound embodied experience. Okay. It, when, when, I think it's in Colossians when, when Paul says that in him, I have, he's talked about Jesus as the one through yes. whom God created, in him all things hold together. Hold together. me. that's the word. So and he is, he, is, he the binding, is he the binding force? Is he the binding he's force? He's the binding force. And so I, I often use the imagery here. Um, I'm, I'm always amazed at our abysmal ignorance um, when we use a word like the strong force because we don't know what else to call it. What is this force that holds the protons together in the nuclei of all the atoms? And there's no explanation whatsoever because, as you well know, the closer those uh, forces that are same, the same uh, reach each other, they repel each other in an inverse square proportion. And so, the consequence is there's the amount of, of of a strong force that holds it together is in a teaspoon of water is equivalent to the energy that would require the king, the Queen Elizabeth II, to go from Liverpool to New York and back. Mm. But we don't know what it is, so we call it the strong force, mm. <laughs> as if we had any idea. We put names to mysteries, and we think we understand what they mean, mm. right? Now yeah. we say dark energy, and now we say dark matter mm. to account for ph- phenomena that uh, w- where we simply do not know. Mm. Quasars, we look at quasars, and they are apparently about the size of a sun, but they have the power of a galaxy. Mm. There is no force we know that can account for such a mm. And so it goes. So, Ken, do these, these things we're talking about, do they permeate your writing? I, they permeate my teaching. I have visual presentations from the macrocosm to the microcosm. I have uh, presentations on astronomy because um, I love um, we, we, the fact that we are privileged to live in a time where there is more evidence for the glory of the Maker, of the Creator, now than ever before. Mm. The reasons for that, mm. uh, but because I believe that um, Pascal was right when he said that um, God has apportioned the evidence in such a way that there is enough to satisfy the heart and the mind of a person who chooses to believe, and enough ambiguity to allow the, the one who rejects the evidence to rationalize his disbelief. Mm. And now we live in a culture where disbelief increases, because guess what God does? He bumps up the ante of evidence. Mm-hmm. And he uses it in all ways, through, uh, through technology, through science. Mm. And the evidence that I use for, I have a presentation on science, faith, and reason where I talk about the evidence for the beginning of the universe, the evidence, secondly, for the fine-tuning of the cosmos, third, the evidence for the impossibility of biogenesis, the first cell, and fourth, the the, uh, evidence for information, the nature of information, in the the, uh, biomacromolecules that we call DNA. I don't even have to talk about the E word, evolution. <laughs> mm. I've already, we've already nailed it. And we now have more of that evidence in those four spheres um, in the last 40 years than ever before. So it's a wonderful thing to watch. So it's extraordinary how it's actually enhancing and, and reinforcing uh, the, the biblical perspective. I don't think of faith as being a leap in the dark. It's a step in the light. Mm-hmm. Ken, have you seen the latest high-res pictures of Jupiter that NASA just released? Yes, I did, and uh, I, I, I keep collecting these things. I, every day I go to Astronomy Picture of the Day, and I collect my favorite images. Ah, they, they remind me of Van Gogh. Oh, my, they're, they're, they're marvelous. Yeah, yeah, they're like the stars the, swirling yeah. in Starry Night in yeah. Van Gogh, and it's Starry Jupiter. And, and he himself saw that he believed his, he was a painter for a future generation. Mm. He mm. saw things others did not see. Yeah. Boy. Things have moved, and that's another discussion, but yeah. yeah. The two of you are dangerous together. You know <laughs> that, right? <laughs> and I understand it started for both of you in planetariums, huh? It all started there, and we were, we were talking at the beginning there about the Star of Bethlehem, and mm-hmm. that's the whole thing I'm going to be sending to Michael about yes. 
the whole life, my own my own view because my master's thesis was on the star of Bethlehem. Oh, okay, yeah, and all I, right. And I, yeah, I systematically eliminated the naturalistic phenomena and oh. concluded that actually it was the Shekinah, the Shekinah of glory of God, that was the glory that manifested itself in the wilderness as a as a pillar of cloud by day and and uh, of of uh, of fire by night that guided them and manifested his presence, the Emmanuel, and so forth. There's a, lot, there's a whole separate discussion. But we were both forced to endure the Star Bethlehem show, where there's a conjunction of Saturn, blah, 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 in the house, <laughs> That's do it. In the yeah. house of the Hebrews. And I, I had to do that every year. Well, i tell you what we're going to do. We need to put Ken's website on our website. Absolutely. So that listeners now will know where to go Absolutely. to get more of this, because I want more That's of this, funny. and I know our listeners yeah. do too. Yes. That's so funny. This has been fascinating, yeah. Ken. Thank you. God bless you. I'm, you know, I live in Chicago, so it's really hard to find a dark, starry oh, night. But hey, I just oh, you've got that right. <laughs> there was a blackout in L.A. not too long ago, and they got all these phone calls. The people saw the Milky Way, and they didn't know what it was, oh. and they were freaking out <laughs> and calling kidding? the police. Well, I won't do what that. Is that? What, what is that thing up there? What, yeah. This, this big white streak, what huh. could that possibly yeah. be? Yeah. Ken, you've opened our eyes. No question about it. <laughs> so, in the, so I know we were going to talk about life in the presence of God, but it was this our segue really was this exercise that uh, opened up the whole reality. There are two principles that I love. One is that it is not time, it is intentionality. Mm. And second, it is not trying, it is training. And then putting those two together, I discussed neuroplasticity and the very fact that we can actually train ourselves to become habitually aware of God's manifest presence. And the shocking thing for me was the reality that the church has never taken seriously all the clear evidence of the claims that we ought to be manifesting that presence in our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, pray without ceasing, and re- rejoice always, and everything give thanks. Set your mind on the things above. Walk by the Spirit. Abide in Christ. Um, how on earth can you do that? Do what, what do you abide in the morning and a little <laughs> bit maybe at night before mm-hmm. I go to bed? I think I'm going to love God, my neighbor, maybe in the afternoon. No, yeah. it's, these are ongoing processes, and it presupposes the idea of the integration of heaven and earth, that we are spiritual beings who are already seated in the, at the heavenly places at, at, at the right hand of the Father in Christ, and yet we are also in this world, we are in this world in our souls, our bodies, in a, in a soul-forming world. And so it's the whole thing. I, and I love Brother Lawrence, but the church only gives a nod to him. Yeah. And, but he never told us much about how he did it. And yeah. so that's why I felt the need to create a guide to practicing God's presence, which was kind of like a, um, an actual supplement to life in the presence of God. And we actually have a presence app. We have a, we've created an app called Presence that deals just that way. that way. I want people to begin to realize you can do this all the time. Every right. conversation, every drive, every uh, experience of beauty, um, time dil- uh, dilation exercises and, st- and stopping exercises, it goes on and on. So I felt there was a need for that. So I can be as close to God when I'm washing dishes down in the kitchen <laughs> as the brothers are in the chapel while they're praying. <laughs> yes. I mean, maybe you've, we've heard that, haven't we? And, <laughs> and so you can take out the garbage to the glory of God. Wow, and, man. And, wow. Um, everything matters. My favorite poet, uh, George Herbert, uh, in his elixir says, Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. And he goes on, and he discusses this whole idea of realizing that um, a servant who understands this principle makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws makes that and the action fine. Everything matters. You have enriched us. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Ken. Ken Boa, the author of Life in the Presence of God. Ken, you've opened our eyes. It's wonderful. Thanks for being here in this conversation. I've enjoyed it. God bless you. Thank you. Well, let's wrap up this conversation by asking Michael to sing Chorus of Faith. Sung by the planets and stars, 
tell you we are excited about the changes at our website. You'll see the new design when you visit michaelcard.com and find this new look and easy access to all that's going on with Michael's ministry. You can also contact us with your reactions and suggestions for future programs and be sure to check out the many ways you can share what you enjoy in this podcast. Again, our newly designed website is at michaelcard.com. And coming up, we'll continue with Michael's study of the book of Job when we return in a moment here in the studio with Michael Card. Next week, a classic in the studio with Michael Card. We'll open the archive and hear the second part of Dr. George Guthrie teach on the book of 2 Corinthians. Then we'll revisit a session when the men of the Empty Hands Fellowship came to the Mole End Studio to pray and sing together a broadcast you will want to hear. Watch for the post and share this podcast link with a friend. Find the audio and get the podcast subscription details at michaelcard.com. In our second half this week, Michael, let's turn to the Lament Conference. Yes. Again, as we said earlier, part one is in the archive. You can go back and listen to that. Uh, tell me about the idea of this Lament Conference. Well, the, the sort of broad umbrella is the biblical imagination series. How do we engage with Scripture at the level of the imagination? And un, under that umbrella, we do you know Gospels. We do a Creativity Conference. We do some on Life of Peter. There are lots of themes that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do one on Hesed now because it's a newer thing. But uh, one of the, the ones that people, I think, have benefited from the most is uh, just what we call the lament conference. And so what we do, we, we, we look at the basic idea of lament, then we, we look at laments from primarily from uh, the Psalms. But we spend a lot of time in the book of Job because Job is primarily, yeah, you know. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's a lament of, of innocent suffering. You have laments of uh, contrition, mm-hmm. like Psalm 51, where David knows he's messed up and he's lamenting. But Job is innocent. His suffering, he didn't deserve what he got. And so he's lamenting. He doesn't understand what God has done. And um, so we look at all those kinds of things. But the real uh, uh, highlight of the conference for me is that at the end, everyone writes their own lament. Oh, okay. And uh, we don't make people. But if, if you feel led, you you read your lament. And I've seen people really transform because they didn't, they didn't know they could talk to God that way. They didn't know they could share their frustration and their anger quite – quite so freely. And uh, and just the last conference we did in South Carolina, I'm thinking of one woman in particular who uh, was just really set free. She had a lot in her life to lament, and and she'd never processed it. And just to see the, that weight lifted, because the, I think the freeing idea is that uh, it's it's the way we worship God. We take our frustrations and our anger and our confusion, and we offer it up as an act of worship. Mm-hmm. And once you connected that up uh, for her— it was a very freeing thing. Yeah. As you said in one of your songs, he was wounded too. Right. Well, Jesus, at the point in Jesus' life when he's most uh, most used by God, he's lamenting. Mm-hmm. He offers up his suffering and his confusion. Why have you forsaken me? See? 
as an act of worship. Hmm. Yeah, I've forgotten the word uh, when Job says, you know, I heard it with my ears, but now I see it with my eyes. Uh-huh. What, what's the word you use to describe that? What, the turnaround? Yeah. Well, it, it happens at a Hebrew letter, and the Hebrew letter is just is vav, oh, okay. which is translated and or but. Okay. And what happens in all the laments except for Psalm 88 is it's lament, 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 but you, O Lord, and the, the turn happens. And that's what's happening when people write out their own laments at right. the conference. The, okay. you, you exhaust yourself against God, right. as it were. And then once you're out of words, then you turn back. And David is the best example. Uh, you know, I, I have no one in heaven but you, right? You hold me by my right hand. Well, we're going to hear part two of that teaching about lament from the conference itself after you sing the Job Suite right, right now. Right, A throne of ashes, a crown of pain, a sovereign of sorrow, a mournful rain. May the day of my birth be remembered no more. May darkness and shadow come claim it once more. Why did I not perish on that dreadful day? Sleep now where kings and counselors lay What I dreaded most has now come upon me Why is light given those in misery? I loathe my own life so my tears fall like rain As I find that there is no peace in my pain Terror will frighten no more A counselor between us To come hear my oath Someone who could lay a hand on us both These friends of mine Are no comfort to me So deftly they listen So blindly they see Their words and their doctrine They all sound so true The problem is, Lord, they're all wrong about you I know my advocate waits upon high My witness in heaven sees the tears that I cry A true intercessor who will condescend To plead with God as a man pleads for his friend. If I've been untrue, if I've robbed the poor, if I'm without guilt, then what am I suffering for? God would not crush me for some secret sin. And though he slay me, still I'll trust in him. I know now that my Redeemer's alive. He'll stand on the earth on the day he arrives. And though my body by then is no more, yet in my flesh I know I'll see the This is the structure of the book of Job. And when, when, when uh, we, we engage with the scripture at the level of our imaginations, which is the whole BI, biblical imagination structure, we listen to the voice of the author, we listen to the life situation of the book, and we listen to the structure of the book. And th- this is really a structure deal. Okay? So the structure of the book of Job is fairly simple. The disaster happens, uh, and Job's friends show up, and then they, they go back and forth lamenting. Um, Job will lament, his friends will in, uh, imply, they make all these implications, I'll read their implications here in a second. They're all saying you're guilty, but they never just say you're guilty, they'll imply it. And then Job will go back to lamenting, and then his friends will interrupt him, 
and then uh, they discourse, and then Job will go back to lamenting. I think there's six laments in Job. Now, I discovered something this morning, and I'm not too big a man to admit it. I'll put my big boy pants on and say I've been, have been saying something wrong. I've been teaching for years that Job's laments get shorter and shorter. Well, they don't. I counted the verses this morning. Okay, the, verse, the first lament is 25 verses long. The second one's 51. The third one's 22. The, the fourth one's 33. And his last lament's the longest one. It's 102 verses. So I was wrong. Okay? I'm not too big a man to admit it. Okay. But, there's your Bob adversive turnaround. But the point is still, Job is trying to talk to God, and his friends want to talk about God. That's why that essay is entitled, Beware Your Friends. Okay? When you're weeping or suffering, or when someone you're talking to is weeping or suffering, they don't need your theology about how God works in the world. They need you to weep with them. That's what Jesus said, weep with those who weep. People don't need to be fixed. You do know that we are unfixable. You do know that. I mean, if you're married, you know that about your spouse. Right? We have to be redeemed. That's, we're unfixable. That's why we have to be redeemed. And Job's friends all try to fix him. And here are their implications. Eliphaz says to Job, what innocent man ever perished? Now, what does that imply? You're not innocent because it looked to me like you're perishing. Right? Bildad. He says, if you are blameless, he will protect you. What is he really saying? Nobody's protecting you from where, I, you know, from where I'm looking. You're bad. I don't know what the opposite of blameless is. Blameworthy, I guess. Zophar... Who is, I, I dislike him the most. Zophar at one point says, your children got what they deserved. Can you imagine telling that someone who's lost all their kids? What an idiot. So Zophar says at one point, if there is iniquity, remove it. So, you know, confess, say what you did wrong. And I told you, my, my sister, when she lost two babies in 13 months, someone in her church came up to her and said, you must have done something wrong. Or, well, we groan, but that's how we all think. Right? Because we still think God's the M&M man. And he gives us good stuff when we're good and he whacks us when we're bad. And God's trying to tell us in a book like Job, how could you think that's all I am? I'm not the M&M man. I want, I want to be intimate. I want to know you. I love you so much I want to be married to you. Do you know that? God loves you so much he wants to be married to you. He loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. That's where we're going. And what a tragedy it is to just to be stuck on Torah. Torah is good. Torah is perfect. God gave us Torah. But it's meant, it's the beginning of our journey with him. Okay. And Elihu, this person we hope for, we hope for so much from Elihu, don't we? Right? He shows up at the end and he's, he's, he's uh, respectful. You know, I know you, I respect your wisdom and I was waiting until you guys were done talking. Of course, you're, you're, you're all wrong. So let me, you know, let me fix your, you know, he just got, he just got out of seminary. I know, I know Elihu. He basically is, is a works righteousness uh, guy. He says that um, uh, um, he pays a man according uh, to his actions. So they all sort of say the same thing. So that's the structure. There's a prologue. There are the throne room scenes. It would have been good if Job had known about the throne room scene, but he didn't know that was going on. His suffering, his friends appear. Then it's lament versus theologizing for 40 chapters. God appears, and uh, then you have the conclusions. So here's, here's a couple of questions for you. If question one, is Job's suffering a test so that God can determine whether Job will remain faithful? Is, is Job a test? I don't think it is. Because God from the very beginning says, he's my man, he's righteous, there's no one like Job. And Satan says, you know, well, he's only, he's only righteous because you give him stuff. You take away his stuff, he's going to curse you to your faith. God says, it's not going to happen. So, and isn't it interesting that Satan has to have permission to do stuff, right? Think of it, when, remember what P Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. So I think this throne room scene is an ongoing thing. Now, it, 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 it's comforting in one sense that Satan has to get permission, but it's not comforting that God lets him do stuff. But apparently, you know, this is how God even uses, you know, I don't want to say, I don't even want to say that word. God uses suffering, I'll say it that way. Does God cause cancer? Absolutely not. 
Does God allow people to get cancer? Yes, he does. So the problem is still there. That's the problem of Job. Did God kill my sister's babies because she did something wrong? Absolutely not. But he allowed it to happen, so the problem's still there. I think that's kind of what Job is about. So let's look at uh, the structure of his laments. The first lament is a curse. It's a suicide lament. 3, 1 through 26 is the first lament. And Job curses the day he was born. It would just be better if I had never been born. And that's kind of a borderline suicidal thought. Uh, Lament 2 is 6, 1 through 7, 21. And this is where he refuses to stop lamenting. And you you begin to get the fact that Job kind of understands something about God that they don't. He understands that I can say these things to God because I need to say these things. And they're saying, your sin dictates your speech. Complaining to God is a sin, which is what people tell us in our churches all the time. But Job says, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to complain of the bitterness of my soul. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have this difficult conversation with God. And that's very, very important for us to, to, to understand. Uh, he refuses to stop lamenting. In, in the middle of the lament, he says, let him crush me. I'm not going to shut up. And you, we see this with people like Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus doesn't shut up. And Jesus kind of likes that. You know, he likes it when we're, keep knocking. You know, the persistent widow. If this woman doesn't, she's going to wear me out with her coming. Well, if, if an unjust judge says that, how much more a good God of Hesed if we're persistent? So Job is not going to quit. Three is a chapter 10 verses 1 through 22, and the theme of that is, I know I'm not guilty. I know I'm not guilty. The narrator says he's righteous, and God says he's righteous at the front of the book. Number four is uh, 13, 17 through 14, 22. And this is this presence business. The lament is about, why do you hide your face from me? And that's where I got the title for this book, The Hidden Face of God. Hell is the hidden face of God. So why do you hide your face from me? I know that you are a God of chesed. You have revealed yourself as a God of loving kindness. So what's happening in my life makes no sense. And I need you to, to show up. And the final lament is 29.1 through 31.40, which is the longest lament. It's 102 verses. The, the theme of the lament is, I cry out, but you do not answer. Uh, if, you, if you track it, the emotionality of the laments, he gets more and more desperate and at the end of the fifth lament, he, he says, he's not there, he's hidden. His fingernails are just about to let go. He doesn't get progressively more certain. He gets more weary. And, and you know, he's, it's, it's a, if you've ever done, if you've ever been sort of wrestling with God in this way, it's kind of Jacob, Jacob wrestling with the angel. You're going to lose, right? You're going you're to limp for the rest of your life and you're going to lose. You're not going to win this wrestling match with God, right? He's God. Um, And you're not going to get an answer. But God is going to show up because that's what you really need. You think you need an answer. You need him to show up. That's what happens. So, yeah, um, he is not there. He is hidden. In 23.8, he says, I'm terrified in his presence. God is this person that's really malevolent and I'm afraid of him and he's turned his face away from me and so uh, I can't take it anymore so that's the dark part here's the light part of Job and one of to me one of the most exciting things about because I'm a pointy-headed Jesus Christ is the center of everything Job has the clearest vision of Jesus in any book of the Old Testament except for Isaiah I would say and the interesting thing is there's no Christophany, Jesus doesn't appear in the book, right? Uh, there's no, really, there's no revelation per se. He, his realization of his need for Jesus comes completely because of his suffering. And I think it's a, it's a miracle. There are three times he realizes, this is what happens, he realizes the inadequacy of this. He realizes that this isn't working, that he's been obedient and he's being punished. It's just like Psalm 73, Okay, but what does he realize? He realizes he needs a person. There's a person missing from this equation, and this is beautiful. Three realizations. The first one is 9:33. He realizes. He says, "If only someone could stand between me and God and lay a hand on both of us." 
Who's that? Right, I mean, he, he could have been looking at a crucifix and said that. See, he knows he needs a mediator. He needs to be mediated for. In this throne room scene, where God is on the throne, as Satan is there accusing him, there's something missing, right? A mediator. And he only realizes that because he needs one so badly, right? So that's the first one. Uh, the second one is 1619. So he knows he needs to be mediated for. In 1619, he says, I know my advocate is on high. He realizes he needs to be advocated for. Someone needs to stand before that throne and say, no, wait a minute. You know, see, I, I see it this way. Jesus, you know, every, every day, that, the throne room scene is ongoing. It's happening right now, right? And Satan's standing before uh, the Lord and saying, look at Card down there. What a hypocrite. What do you, why do you have anything to do with that guy? What a jerk. What about this? What about this sin? What about this shortcoming? Right? And Jesus stands before God, and every time Satan accuses me or you, Jesus says, well, what about this? What about this? And God says, I know card's unacceptable, but I'm going to accept him because you've advocated for him. You have mediated for him. Okay? So 933, Jesus is seen as a mediator. uh, 1619 is the advocate. Then the big one, this is the one we all sing at Christmas, 1925, I know my Redeemer lives. He knows he, he needs to be redeemed. It's not just about being obedient enough and good enough. He should do those things. But that's not what saves him. He needs a person. And I say, so the, the missing part, or the, the not, not missing because that's not incomplete. I need to find a better word. But what, what completes this equation is hesed. And hesed comes to us in the form of a person. Incarnation is Jesus. So, you know, all this, this transactional, this is all true and good, but but I'm never going to be obedient enough. And God loves me too much to just destroy me because I'm disobedient. He's going he's to provide His own Son so that He can bless me. Okay? Redeemer is 1925. And again, he real, the answer is not an answer. The answer is a person. The answer is... Uh, and I, would, I suggest to you, I suggest to you, that yeah, God shows up at the end of the book of Job, but this is really Emmanuel. God with us. The answer is Jesus showing up. Okay? I, don't know, I don't need his provision. I need his presence. So here's uh, the conclusion, or here's some questions for the conclusion. In the book of Job, who's right? I mean, other than God. Is Elihu right? Is Zophar right? Is Job right? No, they're all wrong. The book of Job is not a book about being right. It's a book about being faithful. Right? And what's the point of Job? He's faithful. He says wrong things about God. He doesn't understand things. He says God doesn't love him. He says God has hidden his face from him. He says, you know, God is all these bad things about God. So it's, but it's not about being right. He holds on. He doesn't let go. Okay? Faithfulness. And sometimes I think I, I was in a church that basically salva- it was salvation through thinking the right thing. And I think Job's friends all go to that church. Salvation through correct theology. And I'm not saying we shouldn't guard sound doctrine. Don't get, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not playing free and easy with that. But what I want for the, what's left of my life, I want to understand what it means to be faithful. I want to know what faithful looks like, faithfulness looks like. Okay. Second question I already asked this, is Job a test? Uh, no, it's not a test. Because God says in chapter 1, he's, a, he's righteous and Satan, when, no matter what you do, it's not going to, He's not going to let go, okay? So no, it's not a test. The Peter and Jesus thing, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. That's Luke twenty-two thirty-one. if you want to write that down in your notes. I think that's fascinating to me, that all the way, you know, 6,000 years later or 7,000 years later in Jesus' life, he's talking about the throne room scene. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. He has an advocate. He has a mediator. Does, 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 does he say, I prayed for you and you're not going to suffer? No. Peter still suffers. But he prayed that he would be faithful. See, see how this works? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter and I am the clay.
Lord, have thine own way. Search me and try me, Master, today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now. We've been talking about transformation and going from I to thou. And I just want to give the best example I know in the Psalms. This is Psalm 73, a Psalm of Asaph. And for 22 verses, he has lamented, and and the, the, the turnaround happens in verse 23. And the vav here is translated, yet. Yet, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You Guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me up into glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But as for me, he says, God's presence is my good. And uh, that's what it is that we're all shooting for, to make that movement from I to thou. Very good. Thank you, Michael. We'll pick up this study in the weeks ahead. Next week, join us for a classic broadcast recorded at the Mole End Studio. And if you need to listen to this program again or have missed a recent program, just look for past sessions online. Our website has been fully updated, so it's easy to find more details about the program and Michael's ministry. Come explore all that's waiting for you at michaelcard.com, Michael's weekly blog. You can learn about his conference ministry and get links for subscribing to this podcast at michaelcard.com. And now for the whole team, including our producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for listening to In the Studio with Michael Carr.